Welcome to the podcast for the Northwest Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Atlanta. Our minister is the Reverend Terry Davis, and each week we'll record audio of the sermon and reflections from members of the congregation from the pulpit at our home in the woods. Thank you for joining us. You can visit us in person at 1025 Mount Vernon Highway Northwest in Sandy Springs or on the web at nwuuc.org. February 26, 2017. Today's service is Non-Rational Courage, with a reflection by Hannah Cowart and a sermon by Glenn Kohler. Good morning. Courage. Courage for some people, like me, is inherently non-rational. I draw on courage when I'm at a disadvantage or unprepared, when things are not going my way and there is no indication that that's going to change, when in that moment I'm losing at life. Almost every time I'm looking for courage, I can boil the situation down to fear. I'm scared of something. Scared of failure, scared of being vulnerable, deathly afraid of the unknown. Throughout my life, the situations leading to those fears have continuously shifted and changed. Some days, I'm scared to wake up in the morning. There have been plenty of times in my life when just getting out of bed took more courage than I thought I could muster. Other times, it might be having a difficult conversation ending a relationship, embarking on a new journey, admitting I need help, standing up for what I believe is right, or even public speaking, like right now. (laughs) Sometimes even expressing a joy or concern to this loving and supportive community during our weekly ritual leaves me shaking all over. Depending on the day, any of these situations can seem as scary or as downright impossible as stopping a freight train single-handedly. In a severe state of fear, my rational response would be that the losing will continue. The thing I'm most scared of will come true. And that's when courage comes into play. An idea from somewhere down deep that things can be better. Just as there has been a huge spectrum of things that I've considered scary in my life, Acts of courage vary widely as well. I get out of bed, usually. I'm standing in front of you today. But regardless of, the, of what the act of courage, it is always rooted in an unrelenting desire to not let fear win by keeping me paralyzed. Finding the faith to ignore the fact that at that moment, my life is on track for a mini-disaster. And feeling the pull to listen to my heart which I consider to be my main source of positive energy and courage. Experience after experience of my brain saying, don't, stop, or be scared, my heart pushes me through. And my heart is rarely rational. That's part of the reason why I love trying to listen to it. 
I'd like to think that each exercise in courage, even the little bitty ones, build and strengthen my heart and faith, putting courage closer within reach for the next time so that my actions aren't ruled by fear. I spoke with my mentee in the coming-of-age group. That's our middle school group here at uh, Northwest. I spoke with her briefly about this reflection last week, and her advice was, don't make it all cliche. (laughs) Well, there are few things as cliche as likening courage to stopping a freight train, but that's exactly what it feels like sometimes. So sorry, Chloe, she's not here, but... (laughs) Sometimes that freight train is going so fast and in the complete wrong direction for me. To complicate matters more, it's likely that all of our ideal directions are a bit different. But as the train comes, I pray I am able to identify the root of my fear in that moment, force my brain to take a back seat, and let courage take the wheel. Because any time fear loses, that's a victory. Even if the freight train doesn't do a 180, if its course is altered even slightly, courage wins. Our minister, Terry Davis, doesn't like it too much when we get up here and ad-lib, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, you, you won't tell, I'm sure. Although we're being, re- although we're being recorded, and you will tell, so it, it's all it's all the same. But a couple of years ago, I had a conversation with one of our congregants who shall remain nameless, and uh, Lil and I uh, agreed. What? That, that could be any Lil. Yeah. Uh, agreed that uh, some of our least favorite sermons that came, uh, whether it was from the Catholics or the Methodists or the UUs or any of the religions to which we had been exposed, some of our least favorite ones were when the pulpit was used to deliver a history lesson. And I agreed with that, and I still agree with that. But uh, today, I'm going to to violate that, and and there will be a little bit of history uh, presented here today, only because uh, my my excuse and rationale is that only because uh, things that are going on today uh, are so parallel to things that have happened in the past. And so I'm going to use that as, a, as an example. Uh, in a reflection I delivered in, on January 22nd, 2017, and, and that's not the history part, even though it was a month ago. <laughs> I, guess technically that's a, I guess technically that's history. Right, Lil? Yeah. <laughs> or any generic Lil. Yeah. Uh, in a reflection I delivered on uh, January 22nd, 2017, I said that recent political events had left me seriously depressed and that psychoanalysts of all strife will advise that depression is, at least in part, uh, a result of the feeling of loss of control and of hope. I concluded that I, and maybe we, need to generate hope by focusing on things that allow us to regain control, or at least the perception of control. I suggested that we needed to focus on external efforts, that is, efforts that uh, could potentially impact the greater community, or society in general. I said that, external though it may be, securing a job building a wall, for example, would not qualify for me. Putting effort into attempting to preserve the advancements and progress we've made in uh, curbing climate change would, on the other hand, make the cut. 
Since that time, my depression has at least partly morphed into extreme frustration and an almost overwhelming sense of urgency. The urgency stems from the sudden realization that, for example, religion could once again be used as a means of persecution and that I should be doing whatever I can to stem the rising tide in favor of such practice. I only need recall the relatively recent past to exacerbate those feelings. Here comes the history. In his review of Ingo, Ingo Muller's 1987 book, Hitler's Justice, The Courts of the Third Reich, Rabbi Yitzchak Breitowitz writes, quote, in 1933 Germany, the, ju the judiciary's concept of protective custody was modified. From that point forward, the justice system's protective custody meant the arrest without judicial review of real and potential opponents of the regime. Protective custody prisoners were not confined within the normal prison system, but, uh, but in concentration camps under the exclusive authority of the SS, the elite guard of the Soviet state. The Third Reich was considered a dual state because the normal judiciary system, it coexisted with the arbitrary power of the police. The normal German justice system underwent coordination to align with the Nazi goals, unquote. Why or how, might you ask, would or could jurists, that is, judges, participate in a scheme of unparalleled brutality? To, in part, address that question, in his 1959 book, The Judge in the Third Reich, History and Documents, Hubert Schorn, a retired German Country, uh, county judge offers rationales ranging from, quote, judicial re resistance to the arbitrary edicts of the Reich was in fact widespread, unquote, to, quote, judges retained their position in the honest belief that they would be better than any successors the Nazis would have chosen, unquote. In his 1987 book, Ingo Muller meticulously demolishes Schorn's thesis. Muller convincingly, convincingly argues, among other things, that the extent of active resistance on the part of jurists was dismally small and that judges were active collaborators in the worst excesses of the Nazi regime. Did those judges collectively view Jews, for example, in such a disparaging way in pre-Nazi times, or did they simply lack the courage to resist? We'll probably never know, but I know what I think. To those judges, the concept of resisting the use of religion to cull the herd, that is, to separate from the general populace a contemporary undesirable element such as the Jews, must have seemed like it would necessitate a non-rational act of courage, like standing on the tracks trying to stop that freight train of Hannah's. Compliance was the rational and less courageous tack. Regarding spirituality and courage, our own Ralph Waldo Emerson is credited with saying, whatever you do, you need courage. Whatever course you decide upon, there's always someone to tell you that you are wrong. Kind of like marriage. <laughs> there are always difficulties arising that tempt you to believe that your critics are right. In large swaths of today's world, religion-based justice can include the severing of hands for the crime of stealing, 
for crimes considered to be of a more serious nature, public lashing, stoning to death, and crucifixion are justified. Culturally sanctioned honor killings are acts of perceived justice committed by male family members against female members who are held to have brought dishonor upon the family. Though mainly associated with the Asian continent, especially the Middle East and South Asia, honor killings occur all over the world. The UN estimates that approximately 5,000 women, 5,000 women are victims of honor killing justice each year. Although the aforementioned might all sound disturbing and draconian, we would do well to remember our own past and present methods of execution and our internment camps, both past and potential. So what's my point? It is my view that as in the recent past, the justification and acceptance of the use of cultural extremes in religion, for example, to punish or call the herd could once again rear its ugly head and it has raised its ugly head. I don't think for a second that it couldn't possibly happen again as a means of meting out a virulent, a virulent form of justice and with a groundswell of support from a state and from citizens who deem their religion or their nationality or their skin color or their citizenship status to not be in the crosshairs. Yeah, you just wait. Thomas Jefferson is credited with saying words to the effect, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. I think he could not have been more spot on. In my January 2017 reflection, I also noted that the 18th century great parliamentarian Edmund Burke, Edmund Burke is credited with saying, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I'm not a religious person, but I consider myself to be strongly spiritual. I guess I wouldn't be here if that wasn't true. I'm a numbers and science geek and therefore have a strong sense of rationality and an almost unwavering belief in, for me, the near sanctity of probability. Regarding successfully quelling the rising sentiment for the use of religion as a means of persecution, rationality powerfully tells me that my chance, perhaps our chance, might not be great. In fact, if statistical truth be told, the probability of success likely is abysmal. I can't turn to rationality, therefore, from our, for my source of enthusiasm. Winston Churchill was credited with saying, and I, I like this quote because if you think about the, uh, how the war was going for Winston in the early years, he said, success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> You got to love that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Ergo, I must give a nod to traditional religion and believe that we good people can summon the courage to do something so as to not let evil triumph. So should I, should we, act as did the German judiciary of the 1930s and 1940s and bow to rationality that would discourage believing that we can, that we can or should summon the courage to resist modern-day sanctioned injustices? Or can we take, uh, can we take uh, actions that would fly in the face of rationality and call upon spiritually-based, non-rational courage to attempt to stop that freight train? To act courageously, we have to believe that we can prevail, 
in spite of the rationale that would dictate that we eschew the courage to try. I'll close by offering these words from an unknown author, and I chose these words because I thought they uh, related so well to resistance fatigue. When things go wrong, as sometimes they will, when the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high and you want to smile, but you have to sigh, when care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Success is failure turned inside out, a silver tint on the clouds of doubt. And you can never tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems afar. So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things go wrong that you mustn't quit. And as Terry would say, may it be so. 